As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Welcome to Ask N.T. Wright Anything. I'm Ruth Jackson, and today we're going back to 2019, where Tom answered questions on his personal favourite preachers and authors. Who from the 20th century would he want to have dinner with? Has he ever struggled with his own faith? And why is Tom an Anglican? Let's join them now. Great to have you in the studio you. again, Tom. Um, and today we've uh, brought together a number of questions that came in around yourself. So um, it's, I know you're a very humble person. <laughs> you don't like talking about yourself all that much. But people do want to know about Tom Wright himself. <laughs> Uh, so are you okay with that? Sure, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> I have a friend who's writing a book on humility, and we tease him that it's going to be called Humility and How I Achieved It. <laughs> let, let me go actually to a question I was going to leave to the end, but but actually I, th- I think I'll ask at the beginning. Uh, Jim in Davis, California says, are you planning to write your autobiography or memoirs in the future? Well, um, my publishers have muttered to me that a theological autobiography mm. might be fun because I, I happen to have been, as it were, a guilty bystander in major shifts in the study of Jesus and Paul and various other things as well and resurrection and new creation and so I found that on the odd occasions I mention how I came into all that um, in lectures and so on people are actually quite interested in that mm. so it, it may be that that will happen sooner or later I doubt if a real autobiograph- autobiographical <laughs> memoir would work the, the, the trouble is that there's a huge temptation to settle old scores and that does not read well <laughs> yes yes I suppose not, it's, it's one thing real old to write to a biography of Paul you know 2,000 yeah, years later yeah. for people who are still still with us that's well, a slightly well, different matter well yes <laughs> um uh, one person that they mentioned, actually, Jim specifically, says, I, I, I'm especially interested in reading about your time at Oxford with George Caird. I'm afraid the name doesn't mean a lot to me. Okay. But. George Caird, who died sadly young, he was younger when he died than I am now. He was 67 and just about to retire. He was the principal of Mansfield College. He was a great nonconformist preacher, lecturer, theologian, um, basically a biblical scholar, been a pupil of C.H. Dodd, among others. He was um, from Scottish roots originally, from the Dundee area. There is a Caird Hall in Dundee, not named after him, but it's mm. a it's a famous um, name up there. Um, George is a brilliant classicist who studied it in studied in Cambridge, then came to Oxford to do his theology, and then did a doctorate. And he did doctorate on glory in the New Testament, a wonderful piece of work which has never been published. Though we're aiming now to get it published at last. Um, and he ran Mansfield College. He preached widely. He lectured. He was a brilliant New Testament lecturer. Mm. And he would come in 
sweep into the room, one wore gowns in those days, and the Greek Testament would be on the thing, and as Henry Chadwick once said, it's probably upside down because he knew it by heart anyway. <laughs> um, and it was a theatrical performance. Right. And, and we'd be sitting there absolutely spellbound. Um, and then he'd finish the lecture, snap the book shut, and swoosh out of the door. And, <sighs> and no surprises, one of his sons is one of the most famous theatre directors of mm. our time, John Caird, who, who was one of the producers for um, Les Mis and yes. all that. Mm. But he, four children, another of whom was a concert oboist. I mean, a very, very talented family. And George was my supervisor all through my doctoral thesis. Right. So the second okay. half of the 1970s, I would go in fear and trembling to him <laughs> um, every few weeks with something I'd written. And he would say, well, now, this is very interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with it, but let's have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. And off we'd go. <laughs> and I think we both changed our views, but probably me more than him. I think right. certainly me more than him. Yeah. Um, but what I'm most grateful to him for was the historical approach, which then came out particularly in his famous book, The Language and Imagery of the Bible, which is one of those life-saving books, mm. which actually explains what apocalyptic language is all about. Right. That when the Bible says the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars mm. will be falling mm. from heaven, this is not a weather forecast. Mm -hmm. You know that, that 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 this is language about empires and, right. and great power games going on. George understood that. He was a Hebraist. He translated some of the Apocrypha for the New English Bible. I mean, he knew those texts intimately and knew how they worked mm. and would slice through the nonsense that was going on in biblical mm. scholarship. So he's a great role model. And I was privileged to co-edit a volume of essays in his memory after he died. Um, but we, how much we wished he'd lived to have them presented to him. Let's keep on the theme of people who have influenced you. Hmm. Paul in California asks, who have been the top two or three preachers that you have loved to listen to on a regular or semi-regular basis? One of the funny things about being ordained, and then particularly being a bishop, is that wherever you go, you're doing the preaching. <laughs> so for years, I haven't actually listened regularly to very many preachers. Mm. The church I go to now has had a succession of different clergy in the years that I've been going there, including a long interregnum where we would just get different people. So I haven't been regularly going to one person. Can I say, I would be terrified of being the minister of the church that Tom Wright attends. Fortunately, it's a, it's a tiny church. The church I attend is not much bigger than this space we're in here, and there's a congregation about 20. And there's another retired theological professor right. also in the congregation, Stuart Hall, who's a well, British double the scholar. reason to be terrified. But, but the, 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 the church wardens and people always tell visiting professors, you know, these two are harmless, they won't, they won't bite. Because, I mean, it's a, it's a very serious point. Yes. When I go to church on Sunday, I'm an ordinary Christian needing to hear that God is a God of grace and he is for me and Jesus and, and please come and that I'm welcome too, despite everything. Um, I need that just as much as everyone else, possibly mm -hmm. more. Um, if my wife was here, she'd snort and say, certainly more. Um, <laughs> so, you know, th that's where we are. However, um, when I was young, I was very fortunate in Oxford to hear Keith Weston, who mm -hmm. died not that many years ago, K.A.A. Weston, was rector of St. Ebb's Church. Keith was a wonderful preacher, a warm-hearted good speaker. He'd done his homework. He loved exegesis. He got us to open the Bibles, but not in a dry, wooden mm. way, mm. brought it to life week after week. I also was privileged to hear some Bible expositions, and I used to get tapes of them um, from Alec Matia, who was at one stage principal of Trinity College Bristol, was an Old Testament scholar. And Alec opened the Old Testament. I, he once did a series of Bible readings in Cambridge on the whole of the book of Isaiah in, mm. I think, six or seven hour-long lectures, which 
opened my eyes to ways of seeing the whole flow of Scripture, um, which I've always been grateful for and always tried myself to reproduce. I did hear John Stott and Dick Lucas and people like that when I was young, um, great preachers with their own particular styles, Mm -hmm. but always with that sense of the detailed attention to the text. You know, the text is the text is the text. Mm. And we're not just using it as a springboard to jump off into fairyland. Mm. Um, and, and and But then, nor is it just a mathematical exercise. Yeah. It, it's mm. got to translate out. Mm. And so that's that's what I, what I learned mm. from them, and I'm mm. really, really grateful for that. I mean, just sticking with the idea of, of you sitting in an average church congregation and, and listening and being able to be fed yourself i mean do you have to sort of turn down the academic in you in order to Um, receive in a sense the spiritual side um, of that yes and no one never knows i mean part of the joy of listening to a sermon in the context of a worship service is that the words may be comparatively trivial comparatively you know yes that's the sort of thing that the average preacher would say but when it's hedged about with psalms and hymns and bible readings and when you're coming to the lord's table Mm. um in and through it all um, even ordinary words can mean more yes. than they mean by themselves. Preaching is funny like that, um, and yes, for for me it's no it's no trouble because the academic bit of me is the academic bit of me. But the person I yes. am is a yeah. as an ordinary Christian who reads the Bible every day and tries to hear what God is saying. You know. I, I seem to remember some words from C.S. Lewis that I can't quote exactly, but but in, I can't remember exactly where they were either. But where he talked about the importance of as Christians. Him being obviously a brilliant Christian thinker, but sitting next to the the charwoman, I think was oh, the yeah, language used yeah, in yeah, a church, yeah, yeah. and accepting that that God is just as much oh, present in that service oh, for her as He is for the for the a, great abs- academic. Absolutely, and and I mean one of the one of the sort of negative blessings of having been an academic for half of my working life when I was in Oxford and then in, now in St Andrews is that certainly let's say looking back. 30 or 40 years to my young days as an academic, <laughs> some of the most dysfunctional human beings I've ever known have been Oxbridge <laughs> academics. Um, and some of the most highly functional, loving, shrewd, sensitive people I've ever met left school at 14. Yes. Um, so that I have no academic snobbery, whatever. W- wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, super stuff. <laughs> um, let's, let, uh, people want to know... Um, the sort of people who are influenced you as well, outside of the people you've specifically met. Um, Mario in Croatia says, what do you think about another big British giant in the, the literary scene, G.K. Chesterton and his work? Oh, yes. I haven't read everything of Chesterton's, but obviously he's a great novelist and very funny and, and quirky. Um, and his his great book, The Everlasting Man and other things like that, were attempts 100 or so years ago um, to explore the world in ways that at the end of the 19th and early 20th century people just weren't doing. Obviously, Mm. he comes from a very traditional Roman Catholic Mm. um, perspective um, and and was was kind of exuberant in his delight Mm. at being able to to say the opposite of what everyone was expecting. <laughs> and I think sometimes he overdid that. And mm. It was just his personality. Mm. I mean, I'm not an expert on him, but mm. I've all, I have always enjoyed reading yes. him. Um, and he's one of those figures, um, like Lewis himself, to whom I go back from time to time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like Lewis, where you can read some of the things they were writing 80, 90 years ago and think, gosh, that 
makes perfect sense oh, yeah. today. Still, oh, yeah. there's, oh, yeah. there's so much that. Yes, I mean, uh, of course, in a sense, the human condition hasn't changed. In another sense, it mm. has. Things have moved on. But yes, if you, the, the great thinkers, it's why Plato and Aristotle mm. are still important mm. today. The great thinkers put their fingers on key things about being human, which don't change that much. Mm. And if they're using wonderful imagery to do that, like Lewis's stories or indeed Tolkien, um, then we can relate from all sorts of points of view, lots of ways in. And another writer more recently departed um, that someone wants to ask about. Um, this is Ryan in Nebraska saying, uh, Dr. Wright's emphasis on the kingdom shares many points of contact with some of the spiritual formation teachings of Dallas Willard. Mm. Is Wright familiar with Willard? And if so, what are his thoughts? What authors mm. does he find to be most insightful on the topic specifically of spiritual growth? Yes, it's interesting. I have tried to read Dallas Willard, and I suspect precisely because he and I are really quite close, um, it, it, it's a funny thing. I found it with some other writers as well that when somebody is saying similar things to me, I, I want to edit it. I want to sort of fiddle around <laughs> with it and say, well, could, could we move this bit over here? And surely we're now going to need a section on such and such. And that's not a good way to receive right. a book. Yes. So I have tried to read Willard, and certainly I have a lot of friends who have told me exactly this. Mm-hmm. And indeed, when I was at that Missio Alliance conference, to my astonishment, they presented me with something called the Dallas Willard Award for, oh, right. for, for my work, which I was very proud of and <laughs> have up on a mantelpiece somewhere. Um, so, yes, I, I accept that, but but sadly, I haven't actually made great inroads. So in terms of spiritual growth and development, mm. um, I, I find two quite different sorts of sources. One, the Bible itself, especially the Psalms, mm. is simply there all the time and constantly refreshing. And two, poetry, and especially I'm thinking of some of the great English Christian poets like George Herbert or John Donne, mm. um, or some some of the more recent ones as well, um, Manly Hopkins uh, yeah. and so on. And I find that when I go to them, um, there's a sort of sense of, ah, oh, yes, yes, of course. Mm. Thank you for putting it like that. Mm. I'd forgotten and I need that. You know, And, and it switches um, on the sort of the imaginative of course, element. Of yeah, course, of course. And, so and th- that, that, is, that is vital. I mean, so much in our contemporary culture has treated imagination, music, metaphor, etc., as... A dispensable bit of decoration around the edge, um, whereas I passionately believe that is one of the highways to the very centre. Yeah. Now, in terms of personality, I would say that I'm an, I'm an <laughs> ENFJ, and the F is is reasonably strong. But um, for those who may not know, this is Myers Briggs language, right, and if yes. you don't know what it means, never mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, whereas, of course, people who read my academic works perceive mm. me as, as a thinker rather than an intuitive th- mm. a feeler. Yes. But for me, the intuitive remains enormously mm. important, hence mm. music as well. And one more, if you, you'll indulge us. Sure. Um, Michael, also in California, uh, says, if you could have dinner with any person <laughs> from the 20th century, oh, wow. whom would you choose and why? It's one of those classic oh, sort of dinner party questions, isn't it? Yes, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, it's a funny thing. Um, my oldest son, who's a historian, edits a history journal, uh, the Journal of French, Modern French History, and they did a feature on him in a recent issue, and they asked him these rapid-fire questions. Mm. And one of the questions was, if you could go back to a particular point and meet mm. somebody, mm. what would it be? Mm. And he unhesitatingly said it would be in early 1940 in Normandy <laughs> um, so that he could 
walk into captivity with his grandfather, my gosh, father. Gosh, wow. My father was captured at the age of 19 mm. and spent five years as a POW. Mm. And my son, as a, historian, a modern historian, has tuned into that. Right. Because when you said that question, my reaction was, I would love to go and spend a day with my grandfather. Actually, my mother's father, mm. who was an archdeacon in rural Northumberland, and had been around the Church of England and was um, brother-in-law of an archbishop and had cousins who were headmasters and goodness knows what. Mm. And I'd just love to find out from him what life was really yes. like in the 30s and mm. so on and what the key issues for the church were. Yeah. Um, in, terms of, in terms of public figures, um, it mightn't be very good because we probably don't speak the same language, but <laughs> my great musical hero from early 20th century is Sibelius, the right. Finnish composer. Yes. Um, but I suspect he'd be far too busy, you know, out in the dark woods <laughs> north of Helsinki, dreaming up some wonderful <laughs> whatever. Well, um, at least you can appreciate the music he did create. Oh, right? yes. Um, oh, yes. Let's talk about your own churchmanship um, Gavin in Salt Lake City says what keeps you in the Anglican <laughs> tradition after all these years Tom you're still an Anglican it, it, that feels like saying why are you still wearing the same skin isn't it wearing out now and the answer is yeah it, it actually is but it's still my skin um, I mean I was born and bred up and born and bred an Anglican and um, parents and family on both sides of the family all Anglicans lots of clergy lots of active lay folk um, my sort of deep DNA folk memory is of reasonably good middly Anglican things, certainly not Anglo-Catholic, certainly not evangelical, simply people who were reading their Bible, saying their prayers, singing the hymns, and thinking, now, um, there's old Mrs. Jones down the road who, who needs some help with mm. such and such, mm. or um, now that we've got some spare time, should we be doing Meals on Wheels? In other words, mm. people just quietly being kingdom people in their communities. And though for myself, I prefer styles of worship a bit more um, uh, vibrant in various mm. ways than what I grew up with. The basic Anglican liturgy is Bible, Bible, and Bible. I mean, you have Old and New Testament readings, which is really, really important. If you just mm. have one, you mm. forget that these readings are not abstract things. They're a narrative. Mm. How do you prepare for them, and how do you thank God for those readings? Why? By singing more bits of Bible or mm. canticles mm. close mm. up like mm. the TDM, particularly the Psalms. So the most common or garden Anglican worship has Psalms, Bible readings, and canticles, most of which are biblical mm. themselves. Mm. And then when you turn to prayer, you are coming into God's presence as somebody who has been living in that story again. Um, I think that, that I, I sort of took that for granted growing up. When I move around in other church circles, I find sometimes there are some bits of that missing. Mm. I mean, mm. why now mm. have we got to the point where a large swathe of contemporary Christians don't use the Psalms at all. That's mm. never happened mm. before in the history mm. of the church. It's very dangerous. Mm. Um, and I, think, so, I think there's yeah. something of a movement. We'll, we'll probably address yeah. this a bit when we talk in another podcast about the church generally and ecclesiology and so on. But I think there is a bit of a movement in churches that have gone very, if you like, informal mm -hmm. and contemporary mm -hmm. sort of sense uh, back towards something that's more structured. More I, I think that's so now. I think that's so because I was in Willow Creek in Chicago a few years ago and somebody said to me there, you realize this has now been going for a generation mm. and we're having to start to think about continuity yes. and 
liturgy. Yes. To which I said, hmm, I come from a church that has so much continuity in liturgy it hurts, and we could do with a bit, bit of, you, of what you've got. So, you know, could we do and a do, deal on do this? Do you yeah. find yourself at home in either setting, whether it be a sort of fairly, uh, you know, exuberant praise um, guitars, drums, or quite a formal, um, you know, set yeah, liturgy I, type I, of... Choral, I, I would I would like the best of both. Mm. I love choral even song. Mm. I I am I've lived with that system for a long time, and I'm aware that it can go stale and that it can become just a formality. But because of the actual content, it always has the capacity to regenerate itself. The danger with the informal liturgy is that actually you rotate around the same ten songs. Mm. Um, quite extraordinary. You go yes. to the other side of the world and they're, they're singing the exact <laughs> yes, same stuff yes, they were in yes, the Charismatic yes, Fellowship down yes. the road. I think, well, we, we could do a bit better than yeah. that. And I worry about my grandchildren growing up not knowing the great hymns mm. from Wesley and, mm. and Watts and so mm. on that have sustained some of us throughout mm. our lives. Mm. Um, and and so it's, you know, it is partly the liturgy, which is central to being an Anglican, um, but it's it's also... The sense that Anglicanism at its best doesn't say we are the only pebbles on the beach. It says we are kind of sitting in the middle here, and if we can help with everything else. One of my favorite moments when I was Bishop of Durham was working on a big project where I introduced the local Roman Catholic bishop to the leader of the local house church movement. And I remember thinking, I think this is my job, actually, to to make this sort of connection. (laughs) Making introductions. You've never been seriously tempted to jump ship. No. In my second year, I think, as an undergraduate at Oxford, um, there were one or two fiery preachers I heard in the Christian Union who were urging us to get out of our corrupt structures and do something different and the Lord is doing a new thing, etc., etc. And the frustrating thing for me is that I remember feeling that as a very strong pull, and I do not now know what it was that stopped me from doing it. I, it was I simply sort of, can't remember. It was that, that was the sort of debate between John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones, wasn't that's, it? That's but, absolutely right. Yeah. And it was in the backwash of that. Yeah. Um, uh, I simply don't know, but because um, there were plenty of Anglicans who would say, well, at least it's the best boat to fish from. And, and you know, and I, I, I never really liked that as an argument. It was a pragmatism of it, but still. Okay, time for one more. Um, Samuel, who's a student at Copenhagen University, says, Dear Professor Wright, have you ever struggled with a suspicion towards your own faith, thinking, I probably just believe in this because I've already betted so much of my life, meaning and identity on this horse? If so, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, that has never troubled me. Um, because I know so many people from similar backgrounds to me who went and have stayed right away from the faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was at, at school, um, a lot of the boys that I was with at a single-sex school um, had church-going parents. There was chapel um, day by day, week by week at school. And most of the people that I knew were going right away from it. Mm. So I was never tempted to think, oh, I only believe this because mm. it's what we do here. I was one of the odd ones who right. actually did who believe actually it. Who actually sort of, yeah, um, yeah, stepped yeah. Out. It, it, but, um, and, and by the same token, I have lots and lots of good Christian friends who have come into the Christian faith from right outside. I was mm. having dinner with a student yesterday who was describing coming into the faith from a totally non-church background, right. uh, sort of mid-twenties. Mm. Um, and so it, it happens both ways. Yes. So I don't worry too much about that. I think, um, of course, there are lots of bits and pieces of the faith as I have received it, which are as I have received it. Mm-hmm. And when 
you go to other parts of the world and other traditions, you think, oh, that's how they do this, my goodness, you know. <laughs> and, and why are they doing that? And, and no doubt they would think that in, in my church as well. And, and that's when you just learn to lighten up and think, this, right. this, is, this I, is great. I, I sometimes get this myself, I, you know, in the sense I'm in a different way involved in Christian ministry in the broadcasting sure. world. And, and so people do challenge me sometimes, especially the atheists and agnostics who listen to my other show, um, say, well, look, you're sort of invested in it, Justin. Mm. So, of course, you're going to mm. always uh, be biased uh, to, mm. to sort of mm. see the, the arguments for God and, you know, to see that mm. there is evidence for this mm. and so on. And in a way, I can't deny it. Of course, I'm invested. We, none of us come to these yes. things with a yes. totally well, neutral that's, that's point of the, view, do we? That's the, um, the implicit lie underneath the implication of the question, yeah. as it were, yeah. um, is that every day should start with a blank slate. And now, mm. am I going to believe it today? It's a very mm. postmodern approach right. to life, by yeah. the way. I'm going yeah. to invent myself again today. <laughs> what shall I do? I mean, nobody in the legal profession would say, am I going to think like a lawyer today? No, of course you are. You've learned how to do it. You're doing it. You've got this job. Um, now, that, that might go dead on you. And there are some people, mm. some clergy, some bishops, whose faith, for whatever reason, does go dead, mm. Mm. and then there is a problem, because is this a dark night of the soul that I have to work through, mm. or have I actually totally lost the plot, yeah. and yeah. is it going to be like that forever? Yeah. And I'm one of those odd people that, you know, I wander about, I do the wrong thing, I think the wrong thing, I say the wrong thing, um, and I come back and I say sorry, and we start again. And God is amazingly gracious. And I, I, I never really remember a time of not being aware of the presence of God. So it's, it's not been a case of, do I really believe this? It's, it's like, well, do I breathe? Well, yes, yes. I do. It's, right. It's yeah. how things are. It, it, it's fascinating. Thank you so much for um, spending a bit of time answering questions <laughs> on yourself. Well, Always yes. the easiest thing to do. But. Strange. Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, if you've got more questions, perhaps um, in a future podcast, we'll... We'll ask a few more of uh, Tom's personal <laughs> questions and see what we can dig out from the past. Um, but uh, it's been great to have you Thank again you. for Thank you very uh, much. this week's podcast. Um, don't forget, you can send your questions in as well. AskNTWrite.com is the place to go. Do tell other people about the podcast as well. Do rate and review us. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that replay of Ask NT Write Anything. Do subscribe to our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com and by registering there, you'll get access to hours of bonus content and the link for asking Tom your own question. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.